Um, instant news, instant news, knowing what happened um, somewhere else, just moments after it happened, is a relatively new thing for humanity. Um, in, in a sense, instant news began in 1840 with a little invention by Samuel Morse known as the electromagnetic telegraph. Hopefully we have a picture of it, um, a sketch of it. Um, but even then, instant uh, is a relative term. How long did it take the average person to get the news that came to just a select few through dots and dashes? You know, it's a relative term. Um, but at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the, the, ra- the radio was on the rise. In the 20s through the 50s, that was known as the golden age, the golden age of radio. It's on the, there you go. And here you can see in the Western world in particular, sort of the rising tidal wave of just instantaneous messaging that was previously unheard of in human history. And then, of course, after that, the radio is going to give rise to the television. (laughs) These pictures are hilarious. Oh, man. And this is just going to change the game. The, The gap between event and then the news of the event just really began to shrink. Um, And then, of course, this is where we begin to witness the real debut of the phrase breaking news. Does this slide not give you the most anxiety? I mean, it's just like my blood pressure. Holy cow. I was like, should I even put this in? Um, No, before the invention of the 24-hour news channel like CNN in the 80s or whatever, breaking news was a term reserved for news which was so crucial it required the breaking in of preset programming. Um, it was news deemed by the network to be so important that you needed to be interrupted. An example of this is um, the assassination of JFK in um, 1963. So that's something that was breaking news. Um, <laughs> but with the invention of the 24-hour news channel, um, news became in many ways just a product. Yeah? And breaking news is its slogan, unfortunately. And so now we have smartphones and we're told, and this is, you're, you're not only free to access the news wherever you want, but it, it accesses you 24 hours a day. We're told each morning upon waking up that the world is constantly and instantly breaking apart with something so urgent um, that you need to know it right now. You needed to know it at 3 a.m. when it dinged on your phone for some reason. Um, the earth is just shattering everywhere we look. Everything demands our attention, and everything is, um, everything is as important as the next thing, but when the next thing comes, the previous thing is no longer important. And so it took me a year like 2020 to start to contemplate how exactly I was being shaped um, by a culture of just unprecedented breaking urgency. Like, what, what actually happens to men and women when they're constantly being told in not just a world of breaking news, but also one of Netflix and fast food and Amazon Prime, that the way this world works is immediate. We're told that. So deep down, we may claim to know, especially as believers, we may claim to know better. But practically, when we want answers, we're just used to getting them. I know I am. And and we are used to getting them fast. (laughs) And if on the rare occasion we don't get our immediate answers or we aren't pleased with the answers we get, we just satiate our appetite for immediate answers by Googling them. And so just to clarify up front, I I have nothing inherently against the miracle of being in the know about what's going on in the world. A year like 2020 should make us say, what is going on? And that's great that we can figure those things out. 
and I have nothing against the immediacy of technology. Obviously, I love the fact that I can call up a loved one right now and Zoom during a pandemic. What a gift, kind of. But while I recognize the outstanding blessing of living in our time, I've just become aware in a new way um, of what this world of breaking news and sort of instantaneous messaging um, and fact-finding is doing to me. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm wary of what it's doing to our relationship with God. Because what do we really think of God um, when he doesn't give us the information we think we need right when we think we need it? Um, what, what happens over time when we just find Google to be more efficient than prayer? Um, welcome to the book of Psalms. We're going to talk about the book of Psalms. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up. Um, if you start, if you actually just physically open up to the book of Psalms and you just slowly start flipping, you'll notice, I have a picture of it up here, the text actually looks a little different. Ho- hopefully that's presented in your English translations. Um, you'll notice there's like a lot of white space. So this is a visual cue crafted by your Bible translation team um, to signal to you, the reader, that you're no longer in Kansas anymore. You're not reading a story in the classic sense. You're not reading law. You're definitely not reading God's rule book for you. <laughs> um, you're about to read ancient Hebrew poetry. Poetry. Um, so question, rhetorical one. I always get uncomfortable when you think I am making you answer this with a raised hand. You don't have to, but, but answer it sincerely in your heart. How many of you are in the regular habit of reading poetry? How much time is carved out? every week, for poetry. And how good are you at understanding it? Um, So let's talk about that. Let's do some fun facts about poetry. Did you know, uh, next slide, 33% of your Bible, one-third, is poetry. So that means if, if I think that this book, if we think that this book is God's word to us, that God is somehow speaking to me, then one-third of the time, God is speaking in poems. So in a sense, you might even understand, honestly, I think you, you could even understand the fraction to be a bit larger than one-third because the prophetic books in your Old Testament, Isaiah through Malachi, most of you are familiar at least with them by name, um, where the, in those books where the authors claim explicitly to be speaking for the Lord, they say things like, thus says the Lord, they write almost exclusively in poetry. And then if you just sort of zoom out and you look at your Old Testament as a whole, um, well over half of Yahweh's speech is poetic. So what do we do? Here's the question. What do we do with a God who, when called upon, often chooses to respond in strange utterances and shocking symbols and and riddles and rhymes? (laughs) Um, so before we start talking about that God and trying to get our instant answers, um, I just want to talk a bit more about poetry. Because what is it? Um, Bible scholar Ray Lubeck says, Poetry is a form of writing where normal language is changed in order to intensify its impact. So it's literature that evokes a concentrated imaginative awareness of an experience or a specific emotional response. Um, and regarding imagination... Uh, Eugene Peterson says, imagination is a way to get inside the truth. That's such a Eugene Peterson thing to say, and I love it. 
So a simpler definition of poetry. Here you go. Poetry is word art that messes with you. Word art that messes with you. Lubeck also says, in comparison with other literature, like narrative or discourse, stories or letters, things like that, poetry is normally more concentrated and terse. So it says a lot with just a few words. As a result, it makes for slower reading because you have to allow those thoughts to simmer. And you have to ponder over its appeal. I love this. So this is... This is, um, without a doubt, the universal consensus of habitual poet, um, readers of poetry and, and poets. If you want to drink in the goodness of poetry, you must be okay with slowing down. It will not yield its fruit to the hurried. It won't. And, it, um, and its fruit <laughs> isn't necessarily the precise clinical answers we're in such a hurry to get. So it's, really, it's a really frustrating genre. You can't skim poetry really quick and then be up to speed. Um, the, <laughs> so the fact that God is a poet and that we find him in poetry is actually just the modern American's worst nightmare. We're just not conditioned. We're not conditioned for this God. Because we want to say, like, hey, God, I just, like, what is, what is the answer to this? Like, what's the solution? Like, an- answer me. And God's like, here's a poem. We're like, cool. Um, But as foreign as poetry is to us, I think, and as frustrating as the prospect is that we might have to sit for a lifetime with a poem before it yields its treasures to us, what the... The flip side of the coin is, and I'm convinced, we're all so desperate for it. We're so desperate for it. We are so desperate for art that gets into our bloodstream and messes with us and reveals God. us. The unspoken power of beauty is something we've been made to drink of. So so this is why at countless funerals, hymns are sung and poetry is read. Um, Just think on this with with me for a minute. Imagine you're at a funeral. Picture the scene. At this funeral, you're in the face of grief and despair and just utter loss, losing a loved one. Now, you could get up, you could get up to the microphone and say something like this. God is omniscient. As the creator of our biochemical makeup, he is omnipotent and able to stabilize our emotional state. Though God is omnipresent, his holiness cannot withstand sin, and so by his predestined sanctifying work, he makes propitiation, atones for sin, and enables communion for mankind with his concentrated holy presence. A biblical eschatological framework includes eternal life with God's perpetual glorified holiness. You could, you, you could do that. Imagine, <laughs> Marsh loves it. So just imagine hearing someone, imagine hearing someone just stand up at a funeral and recite that like C-3PO. But now imagine that you're there and someone gets up to instead invite all of those who are in mourning, trembling in holy terror at the fragility of life and the thinness of the veil. Imagine them saying this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You could say that at a funeral. So today marks the beginning of a short series about prayer, where we, are, where we look at prayer and learn not, we, we want to learn how to pray always, but we want to learn how to pray specifically with the Psalms as our guide. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar with the book of Psalms, it just stands out in the Bible as this unique anthology of Hebrew poetry. It has a loose literary structure and organizing principle, and we can, we're going to talk about that a little bit in Sunday School. Shameless plug. But for the most part, we can't approach this book like we approach the other books of the Bible. It's just a, it's a collection of raw and honest poems of praise and lament, thanksgiving and royal blessing, intercession and imprecations or curses, real harsh feelings against your enemies. In short, this is just one giant book of prayer that's been used for millennia by God's people as a guide to learn how to pray. Eugene Peterson, another quote, he says, the Psalms are where Christians have always learned to pray till our age. <laughs> Gosh, Peterson strikes again. So this in itself is worth some contemplation. How fascinating that the, this is crazy, the words of someone else's grief, their pain, their struggle, or their celebration is somehow God's word to me. And then the invitation is mine to now use these words to now become my words to God. <laughs> it's like, what are we doing? What is this? Scholar John Golden Gay says, the book of Psalms is the literary sanctuary, like the physical sanctuary structures of the Old Testament. It offers a textual holy place where humans share their joys and their struggles with brutal honesty in God's presence. He says, the Psalms speak from God by showing us how to speak to God. And church father Athanasius said, most of scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. So these are poems which are written by those who have just trembled before the presence of God and who have told the truth about their experience. They wrote poetry, which was language that was bent and shattered and rebuilt and molded to just jar the senses, to claw at a hard heart, to rattle the emotions in order to see what God is doing in the world. If you've ever felt numb or cold, get ready to read the Psalms. And we have them just in our lap. It's a gateway into God's presence. But here's the thing. It isn't something you can purchase from Amazon. I mean, you can purchase the book of Psalms from Amazon, but then that's it. This isn't a fix-all equation. We don't learn to pray by the poetic people of prayer in our past because we're looking for a silver bullet to kill all our demons. Rather, this book poses an invitation to learn how to pray as our fathers and mothers in the faith have prayed, learning their patience, their perseverance, their heartache, and then ultimately their hope and their joy. Um, in 2013, my theology really began to shift when um, I sort of had an, enc an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And frankly, I just I kept having these encounters with the Holy Spirit that um, 
suddenly I found myself praying for miracles, witnessing miracles, learning from wise men and women who had dreamed dreams or (laughs) had prophetic words for me, whatever the heck that was. And in short, God was moving, I began to realize, in the now. Even, I would say, instantaneously, I was starting to see God break in and move. And so that became a conviction for me that that is what God is interested in doing. And I don't forget, the first time I prayed for healing for someone in real time, it was like Samwise Gamgee when he leaves the Shire with Frodo and he says, if I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. And you just, it's this moment where you're like, man, there's no going back. Like, we got to take a ring to Mordor. And the moment you start to believe God might actually be using you in the now, it's like, you're out of the Shire. So um, I say all of this as a, as a disclaimer to, because to, I want to be very clear. The Psalms guide us um, in prayer in many ways that we're going to explore in this series. But in, in both their content and strategically their form, they're teaching us how to wrestle with the long, unanswered times of silence as we grow and um, just as we grow and become more mature in the faith and, and turn into people that know how to be patient and suffer well. Um, but in doing so, I just want to be clear, and I, just, I feel like I just had to say this, I'm not negating God's desire <laughs> to respond in the immediate. I am fully convinced he does that, and we ought to continue to pray with ever-increasing faith that he does that. But I just think our fathers and mothers in the ancient faith prayed with a poetic resilience that knew what it meant to persevere in prayer, even when God did not speak to them instantly. So when the not yet of the kingdom remains, the not yet will we still be a people of prayer. And the psalmist would say, yeah, let me teach you how. So for the remainder of our time, I, I just want to sit in the Psalms and begin to see what it's like to pray along the grain of biblical poetry. And I want us to pay attention to what happens to our hearts, to our senses, to our bodies when we read the Psalms and consider that maybe God desires to just expand our prayer life, make it more robust, to enlarge our senses and our imaginations, our levels of compassion <laughs> or our empathy and help us to feel the depths of the pain to the fullest extent, that he might then deliver. So let's start with the pain. A lot of us, a lot of us are in pain right now. Man, Andrea, thank you for your bravery in that announcement. Um, if you are this person, follow up with her. Please, don't miss this opportunity. We are sad. A lot of us are just sad. Like low-grade depression, Um, We're mourning something or someone, and this past year was like an airstrike on our lives. And so the question I want to pose to us this morning is, what do our prayer lives actually look like as we work through that? Are our prayers regular or rhythmic? Are they random? Are they in the morning? Are they in the evening? Do we even pray through the pain at all? And, and what, what words do we use? What do we think about when we pray? What are we hoping for? What do we feel? God cares about our feelings. Another shameless plug for Sunday school. So there are real, there are real mentors in our church in prayer, and I'm so thankful that they're here. They've just learned to pray the scriptures, and they're sens- sensitive to the Spirit. Thank God that you're here. But most of us, I think, when we get up... Um, 
in the morning, we're not, we feel a little, sometimes we feel awkward accessing that pain, and we're not sure how to get into it. <clears throat> and so, uh, I think, I think that um, when we pray through our pain, we pray through it a few times, or we're not sure how to pray through it at all, and so we, I mean, the truth is, living through the trial is challenging enough, but then, then I'm supposed to, like, think about it again and talk to someone who's not giving me the instant answers I want. Like, what am I, what am I, what's the point of this? I'd rather just do something else. I'd just rather eat breakfast, honestly. And so it can be embarrassing or disappointing. And so often the prayers we have in regard to our pain is like, God knows, God help. I just can't right now. It's like, it's often our prayer life regarding it. Or, or we're super churchy. And we just turn to praise because that's the churchy thing to do. We say something like, hey, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm struggling, but you know what? God is good. God is good. And here's the thing. All these things aren't not true. That's a double negative. Yeah, no, that's right. These things aren't not true. God does know. God is good. But, but what if there was more truth that he wanted to invite you in to realize and to tell? What if God wanted us to be more in touch with the world around us, with ourselves, with reality, and then to bring it to him? What if he wanted to go into the depths of grief and sorrow? And I mean the depths, that we might actually feel it. And then, under its unbearable weight, be pressed and purified and transformed, truly saved now into a stronger and more mature reality. So read with me the first three verses of Psalm 69, and let yourself just be affected. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Stop. I don't want to exegete this. I just want to let it sit. But picture this. You've ever been in water and you like try to find your footing and there's this panic. And then look, he even says, I found something to put my foot on. But do you know what it was? It was fake. It was mire. I went deeper. This is total, total anxiety. And then look, his face goes under. The flood sweeps over his head. He's drowning now. This is how he talks about his feelings. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. Andrea driving down the road and seeing that semi screaming, it's like, this is the cry of the heart. It's so raw. He says, my eyes grow dim with waiting for God. Man, if someone were to just like pray like this in a, a prayer meeting, most of us would be like, that's a little dramatic, you know? Because we do this with our emotions. We, we, I don't know, Christians are weird about it sometimes. We're just like, God is good, you're fine, or something. I don't know. At least that's my experience. But man, like, <laughs> not God. God looks at your pain and says, open it up. Come to me. Tell me about it. He wants you to think about your pain like you're drowning. Sometimes I think we don't think it's as painful as he thinks it is. 
Notice that the psalmist has just lost his voice. Something to think about, think on. Just let the image sit next time you are pain, praying through your pain. Get loud. This is the version of you God welcomes. Now, um, the psalmist after this is going to go on to talk about his enemies and, and ch- them chasing him. And this is where we start to fall off the wagon a little bit. We're like, okay, we can, maybe we can relate to the emotional imagery, but then it starts to get into like the specific ancient context of like enemies chasing. I don't really know if I have any enemies. And so we start to say things like, how am I supposed to pray this? And I just want to say, hang on, don't quit. Sit with the poetry. Don't demand an Amazon order out of it. That's, that is your modern sense of sensibility kicking back. Just be patient. Um, insist instead that your hurried, impatient self goes deeper and might actually feel what's going on. Imagine the terror. Imagine the heartache. <clears throat> Imagine the agony and the anxiety that David is going through and then join him. Let his poetry bring articulation to the nameless woes of your own life. God gave you his words, so let them be upon your lips now. Let the feelings come. It's poetry. Just let it mess with you. Let yourself feel. (laughs) Then Then arrive at verse 14 in touch with your heart, with your body, your trembling soul, and say to God with your hoarse voice, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Um, So if the Psalms have anything to say about it, a healthy prayer life is as much about learning how to tell the truth as it is about asking God to intervene and change our circumstances. God never permitted us to escape reality or to deny pain, but to look at it squarely in the face, to feel it, for all that it is, and to see God anyway, and to anticipate his kingdom in spite of it, and then with authority to ask his kingdom to come into it. These are all slow, very real, you will tremble when you do it, parts of the equation. And sometimes he comes, and he changes things on the spot. Again, just thank you, God, that you do that in this church in our midst. More, Lord. But sometimes his kingdom is not yet, and we're actually called to lament. A foreign practice for us as individuals, certainly, but corporately, yikes, we don't even know what to do. It's, it's alien to us. To, and, but to deny the grief or the not yetness of the kingdom, or to trade it in for some shallow hope that treats prayer like a magic wand, is to rob a person of learning how to plant deeper roots which draw from living water how to find stability and be truly, indeed, divinely hopeful in the midst of the long, dry seasons. The psalmist prays for salvation, instant salvation, and from his enemies, and sometimes he gets it. Yes, thank you. But he also cries out to God when that salvation doesn't come, and he works through that pain, honestly. So this is the sort of prayer life, this is what shaped Jesus. This is what shaped him, who, when facing his greatest moment, the greatest moment of human suffering that one could undergo, do you know what he chose to do? He chose to quote Hebrew poetry to anchor his soul. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, how dare you express such a raw heart about feeling separate from God? Psalm 22, though. This is Psalm 22. Jesus is so in touch with his body, with his heart, with the feeling of grief and sorrow. I mean, he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders for crying out loud. And so do you know what he does? He cries out the words of a poem which articulates that pain better than he could in that moment. He's not afraid to say, why have you forsaken me? But even in this very raw expression of pain, and don't miss this, Jesus has also learned how to pray according to the grain of the Psalms, where he learned not just how to be present with pain in life, but how to hope. And ultimately, how to praise God in spite of it. So look, this is how Psalm 22 goes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Tell me, this, Jesus, can you see why he identifies with this psalm? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Picture the last 24 hours of, the, of, his, of that narrative. Look what the next line is. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. This is how Psalm 22 reads. It's a back and forth between the hope that the poet has, but never at the expense of the pain he's in. It's about being mocked and suffering in the apparent victory of the wicked, but then ultimately, do you know how Psalm 22 ends? If you haven't read it recently, look at this. And tell me, look at this, and tell me Jesus didn't know exactly what he was invoking when he chose to quote this psalm as his final, at the final moment. This is how the psalm ends. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Offspring shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's like Jesus didn't neglect how he felt and he didn't neglect his hope. Jesus uttered words which told the truth of the stabbing pain of sin and evil knowing that they weren't the final word. In fact, they actually made way for the true hope of the kingdom of God. And notice The father, and I don't want to step too far into theological waters that I don't understand, but the father didn't, at least we're told, didn't comfort Jesus in a way that we would have maybe liked to have seen. (laughs) He didn't break in with news theologically about how this was all going to be fine. No, Jesus was instead filled with the poetry of the Psalms, which not only addressed the pain, but it triggered his imagination for ultimate joy, ultimate hope in God's kingdom. I want to show you a picture of a lavender bush in my backyard. It's springtime, so I had to put a gardening illustration in. Um, This next picture is a little piece of the plant that I cut, the little cutting. If you've ever done a cutting before, you kind of take the, it's like right after the woody part of that lavender plant, you can take the the new growth. So I took this picture this week, but um, I did this last year. So then the next picture you'll see, um, what I do is I, I took my scissors or my knife and I shave off the bottom half of the lavender cutting. 
and you, you, you kind of open up the inside of that plant. And then this little guy is the plant this year that came from that process last year. I have a free lavender plant. Amazing. Um, that didn't just happen, though. I had to put it in, in soil and then put it, you know, you have to baby it and say little prayers over it and you know how it goes. Um, so this, this is my illustration for you guys this morning. This tiny bit of foliage was literally cut off from its roots. Like within a day, that little guy would have died if I just left him on the ground in the sun. And, but what's interesting, though, is that when exposed to the sort of pain and trauma of losing the roots, and then me literally shaving off the leaves of this, I mean, I just like straight up exposed the interior of that cutting. When, when exposed to that, built into the plant at the cellular level <laughs> in the DNA code is this ability to change and grow. So, so notice what's happening. The place of pain, that little bare part at the bottom, the place of pain, the physical wound actually becomes the place where the whole plant diverts energy and then it does so with intentionality because given the right conditions of water and soil and sunlight, the energy isn't wasted. The plant actually becomes the, that little part. The wound actually becomes the place where roots begin to form. So the place of trauma becomes the well of nutrients for a stronger, bigger plant. It's amazing. Um, but that's because all of, the, all of the conditions were right. All of that energy that was devoted to that pain was put inside the right space and, and healing took place. Not just healing, but new growth, new life. This is new creation theology <laughs> in your lavender plants. Praise God. So um, as Marshall's been saying over the past few weeks, we're going, you guys, we're just going to be dealing with the effects of 2020 and all that led up to it for a long time. Like the waves of an earthquake that happened out at sea. We're just, we're going to get hit with it. And the Psalms, I think, are the guide we need <laughs> to become people of prayer in this time. As these prayers are poetic, their very form forces us to slow down and face our fears and our exposed wounds and the pain, and then ask very honestly, God, where are you? Deliver me. <laughs> the Psalms teach us that we can, and I think the Psalms teach us that we can err in, in sort of two ways when it comes to addressing our wounds, and these are really crucial. The first is we deny the wounds or the pain. We deny them, or we just keep ignoring them. We stuff them down. Um, and we're sort of driven by this obsession to be at a normal level or to get back to normal. It's classic right now. Um, but that's a dangerous path to walk. It will not last forever. But on the flip side, though, we're actually in danger of sort of um, dwelling. We're sort of in danger of, of dwelling in the pain and focusing all of our energy on it, but then forgetting to plant ourselves in good soil with water and sunlight around people, and in the presence of God, where we might actually heal. And so the communal reading and praying of the Psalms as the people of God safeguards us, I think, from, from both of these mistakes. We learn how to pray honestly. We're not afraid of bringing the junk to God. And I mean really bringing it. We, we learn how to lament our own evil, how to lament the evil of the world, but we also learn how to grow roots in the place of pain and trauma 
and in time become a people, I think, of real genuine hope that look different in this world. So we're going to transition into ministry time. I want to invite Doug up. I want to invite the ministry team up. Um, And I just want to acknowledge afresh the tension we're in as God's people because Jesus rose from the dead, because he did, and because of his Holy Spirit, we pray right now, today, we're going to pray right now for instant breakthrough. Instant. Um, For miracles, for the nowness of the kingdom. But even as we do that, you guys, even as we do that, I want us to become artists and poets in prayer as well which means we're people who are able to midwife into the room the honest pain and the brokenness that's really going on and not be freaked out by it. Um, Instead, be carried compassionately to the feet of Jesus. So we we need to deal honestly with the grime of 2020 and all which led up to it. And so... This, this kingdom work that we're beginning right now this morning is just that. It's kingdom work. We're maturing in the now and the not yet, and whatever that means, whatever that looks like. So um, Doug's going to sort of oversee ministry time, but as instead of praying today, just inviting the Holy Spirit on my part, the way I want to end is I want to read the first 12 verses of Psalm 139 with you. So I'd like you to stand, and I would like you to not just read these words, but if you can, deep in the caverns of your soul, Let the psalmist's words be your prayer as you invite the Holy Spirit and note the presence of God in the room. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you.